morning or afternoon, depending on what part of the country that you are in. My name is Josh Gilland, I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks, and we're here to really, uh, really rock out with the wonderful, fun issues of the Harris, which I, I was not expecting to see that character so quickly, and it was very rewarding Friday morning. So with that, uh, with me today is Nari Ely and Thomas Harper. How are each of you doing? Doing pretty good. <clears throat> um, uh, had an interesting weekend in DC. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> what possibly could be happening in our nation's capital? What could it be? So a few guests joining your city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a few guests. It looks Good like tourists are back. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Tom. How you doing? I'm good. You know, watching these episodes at like four in the morning on Friday, which is my normal routine, is good because I get to watch, you know, get it into my system early in the morning. But it's bad because I was like uh, Kevin McAllister in Home Alone after the episode where I'm just running around the basement with nobody to talk to. You guys are both asleep like normal people and spoilers are no good, even yeah. if you did have somebody to talk to online. Yeah, I'm now used to waking up to text messages from you and I, I see nothing wrong with that. It'd be weird if you didn't. So I used to pause and I would consider whether to send it like, well, is it inconsiderate to send it since it's like 1am his time? And I'm like, that pause is no longer there anymore. I just hit send. Yeah. Cause if I, if I do wake up at say like 3am, I'll watch it just because, you know, I, it, it's that eagerness that I haven't experienced since childhood. And that's a really unique feeling. For example, I I love Star Trek Discovery, but I don't get up early to watch it. I, I watch that after work, after dinner, and I'm completely happy that way. This, I'm eager to see it like a five-year-old. And that <laughs> says a lot about the power of this of this TV show. And I, I know I'm not the only one who feels that way watching it before dawn. Um, Nari, are you before dawn or after work or what's your after routine? After work, now? so I'm very grateful that I don't get those texts from Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I try to stay spoiler free initially. It's mostly like all caps OMG or like heart emojis or something like that. So if you're reading Josh's texts out of context, you might think that there's, you know, something with us, but it's all about the Mandalorian. This, this, this week I did get those kinds of OMG, but spoiler free texts from friend of the show and legal geek, uh, Bethany. Yes. <laughs> yeah. She was very excited uh, about the guest that should be coming up sometime soon. Yeah. She, she messaged me at work like around noon. <laughs> She's like, have you seen it? So again, it's just, uh, I, I know she wants for Christmas the Ahsoka lightsaber. So yeah, uh, it's perfectly, Santa's watching. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> completely appropriate to want that for anyone who's, you know, an attorney. Um, like I ordered a Walmart wall mount for my office for my Galaxy's Edge lightsaber this week. So that will go up next week at work. So again, it's fun stuff. Nice. Yeah. It's just, it, I felt 
you know, it was a gift from another legal geek for my birthday last year in the before times where it was, I got to do the lightsaber build. And I thought like, you know what? There's a nice space on the office wall where that could go up. And I'm sure there could be interesting discussions during the CMC or hearing it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and then if anybody threatens you with or tries to assign you work that you don't want to do, you just, you know, kind of motion toward the lightsaber and, you know, that goes away. Yeah. I don't want a, a showdown. I, I mean, it'd be neat if it floated over, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's it, it'd be weird not to. So let's talk about this episode. And out of the gate, I loved it. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's directing skills have continued to grow and she's, she's clearly learned a lot from dad and uh, she, she did a really nice job uh, from a director perspective with it. So we begin with the razor crest having a rough landing because, you know, they, they can't slow down. Uh, controls are fried. They, they, he botches the landing right at the end because of an engine failure. <laughs> and we do see, you know, again, I, I have a lot of boating experience because I'm a volunteer and sea scout. So you know, the last you know, 30 years of my life have been very nautical uh, as, a, as a youth or as a volunteer. And seeing the Walker uh, crane hoist uh, extract the razor's crest, if you've, gone through the Oakland estuary or uh, parts of Long Beach have that any place where we have a port of entry where we're getting imports from other countries, you see what look like Imperial walkers that are big cranes for taking off car uh, cargo containers. So seeing them actually lean in and play with that just from a sailor perspective, I thought that was cool. And that fishing village or whaling village looked like like an industrial mystic seaport for those who haven't gone there. It's a vintage whaling town. It's very picturesque. So it's like full on historical reenactments. And there was a lot of elements of, uh, of fishing villages, whether it's like a feeling of Gloucester or mystic. And they really leaned in to the foggy feeling, the big sweaters. And, <laughs> What, what, I love the cable net for, <laughs> for the Mon Cal worker. Yeah, I just it's, this was this was Mon Calamari. Was is that right? No, tr uh, Trask no, okay. is the planet. Thank well, you, thank we, you. and he we don't know. I don't know if I, I. I assume the planet is called Trask. What that city is called, we don't know. But if we think about the creativity of Star Wars naming conventions, it's probably like Traskport or Trask City. <laughs> It's just the Mandalorian mentions right at the end, like, ah, oh, Moan Calamari or something as they're taking <laughs> off. Uh, I, I assume he must be making, it must be just a reference as opposed to, yeah. gosh darn, this particular planet. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, and the two aquatic species that are in that village are from Mon Calamari. So they're, yeah. like, we've seen them, there's a arc in Clone Wars with a young Akbar and uh, installing the prince who's going to be the future ruler. And those species, uh, 
they, yeah, those species appear in addition to a shark type one, and there's a giant drop homage. It is good to see them played consistently as a holes because they were a holes <laughs> in the Clone Wars, and uh, they haven't lost that touch here. Nope, they are not fun people to uh, <laughs> to be around. It's just it's like oh, these guys. It's a character trait of the entire species. Lovely. Uh, yeah. I really, I also wanted to mention, I really enjoyed, like, there was a little bit of a long buildup or a long windup at the beginning of this episode, but I really enjoyed it because they got to actually yeah. play around with and show what the, you know, cantina and other environments would look like on a mostly water world populated by aquatic and amphibious species. It was kind of cool. Yes. Yes, it was. So... Again, and it looks like a fishing village, and they're, it's all very not Chowder is the one thing that's served at that diner, and it looks like chowder. You know, it's just, it's, it's very, very nautical. I, I can't help but wonder if the guys who work at uh, Lucasfilm, you know, uh, came down from, uh, you know, the Presidio and were, like, hitting scomas for lunch and just, you know, like, going around <laughs> Pier 39 and Hyde Street Pier taking notes, going like, hmm, hmm, like, <laughs> you know, my general rule of thumb is that I only eat at restaurants that serve food from a tube hanging in the ceiling. Uh, you know, that's the measure of quality that I need to, yeah. to you know, give my business to a place like that. It's but I had in, in terms of like the legal issues, I the, the thought that popped in my brain before he even got uh, to, to this uh, bar was the Razor Crest is beat up like with a capital B in bold font. And I know it, you know, having lived in a few different States, you know, there are certain standards that you have to have to be able to operate a motor vehicle uh, from place to place. And, you know, it, I, my thought was immediately that the, uh, he, it, he should be glad that the new Republic didn't have, another run in with him. Cause I think he'd be getting ticketed for uh, having a, a non space worthy. Uh, a couple out, I think. <laughs> I'm reminded of the scene from plane trains and automobiles with the burned out rental car with like, yeah. you feel this is safe for highway uh, driving. <laughs> well, yes, officer. Yeah. Well, they're, <clears throat> they're in that category of beat up and it goes to the issue of repair because we have the uh, <clears throat> the mechanic, for lack of a better term, offer to you know, like I'll do what I can. I, I can make it fly, or I'll hold <laughs> fuel. And <clears throat> first off, the voice was adorable. Secondly, that's like there were no terms described of what I can do to fix it. So like there was no true contract of like going in and it's like, hey, I need to replace the brakes or, you know, it, it need change the oil or like whatever. It's you look at how beat up it is. And it's like, OK, what can you do? So like there wasn't really an agreement in terms. And that just something that stuck out to me because it was a very undefined contract. Could uh, there be... Could there be an argument from Mando that uh, the terms were implicit? In other words, he wasn't expecting, you know, a laundry list of specific items, but 
you know, that mechanic sees the shape that the ship is in. It's clearly got some, we'll call it hull integrity issues. Yeah. And, you know, does he get to drop off the car as, or the, the crest as a non uh, expert in mechanics and whatnot and, and just, you know, hand the money over and trust that the terms are implied that he, you know, that that mechanic should rank order what needs to be done and do what he can off that list. Is there any kind of like implicit terms to that deal? Nuri, what are your thoughts? I was just going to add, so, uh, and I was trying to look up to make sure I was, you know, right. (laughs) And I think I am, but in general, where there is, you know, where a contract term would seem indefinite on its face, if there is a commonly accepted term, um, or, uh, you know, uh, within or like a commonly accepted meaning for that otherwise facially indefinite term within a particular trade, courts will usually accept that as like, yeah, both parties probably, you know, clearly meant to, to say this, um, even though they used a pretty vague term. So, you know, we might be able to save the contract there with this one if, you know, uh, do what you can or I can make it fly generally have trade terms <laughs> that people within that craft, that industry understand. Um, then that would help. Otherwise, you do have a problem of an overly ambiguous contract. Um, and in that case, since it's, you know, oral, not written, you can't even construe it against the drafter. <laughs> and he, I, I would argue that if if you go to the end of the episode, he did perform. Mando's issue was with, was not with the amount of, you know, items that he ticked off the list or lack thereof. Uh, you know, it wasn't as though he just sort of slapped a piece of plywood on and took his thousand credits he did a fair amount of work. It's just that the quality of that work and the, the materials used not up to snuff. I mean, he's got like rope and netting all over the place. It's like a classic Mon Calamari repair job. And that's more what Mando took an issue with. And, you know, at that point, Oh, that is why he made that comment too. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. But then at that point, it's your, your argument is less about performance or failure of the contract and more about, you know, if I'm the, the Moncal mechanic, you know, I'm going to say it's, it's going to fly. It's going to do exactly what I said. It's going to have, you know, the, 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 the warranty for, uh, you know, my craftsmanship, my workmanship here is still intact. Uh, come back to me if one of these netting or panels blows off and you crash. Uh, but, I, you know, if I'm the Moncal, I'm standing by my work. Yep. But the crest still is shedding skin as it takes off parts are still i thought that shot at the end was just so so golden it's just like (laughs) leaving behind a little piece oh it's like it just hurts from well to my core as somebody who likes airplanes spaceships and boats it's just like oh you want the boat to be watertight same with the spacecraft like you don't want a vacuum taking place because people get sucked out that way it's not good and, and just seeing it shedding parts, it's like, ah, oh, guys, that's rough. So, yeah, I, I is, is the hole pressurized or are they just stuck in the cockpit still? So there's there are some issues there that I think are noteworthy. Even if it's pressurized, another question, do you trust it to stay pressurized? Yeah, would you fly Never. back there? Yeah. Yeah, the problem is the only bathroom on that ship is in the compartment that is or isn't pressurized. So that's going to create a practical issue pretty quick. Maybe not for Baby Yoda, but you know, Mando's going to have some tough decisions to make. Yeah, and how 
how long is the 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 flight to the next planet to try to find Ahsoka? Yep. Although, at least since they're back to light speed, hopefully not too long, at least until they can get to a better mechanic. Because yeah. <laughs> that, that that does seem to be one of the issues here is like, there's not a repeat transaction that's about to happen with that mechanic. I think the incentive <laughs> to show some good craftsmanship outside of the strict terms of the contract, as Tom pointed out, were diminished. <laughs> yeah, and it's like almost go back to tattooing because you know that will get done correctly there by Amy Sedaris. So... Anywho, let's talk about the restaurant and seafood restaurants you know, can have a lobster tank and you pick out the lobster that, that looks mean that you figure I want that one and I want his friends to watch. Like you, you can do that and be that sadistic or same with crabs, you know, it's like that one and you hear dead lobster walking and, um, and your dinner's made. We have food safety standards. So it's it's one thing to have sushi. And there are rules with sushi. Like you don't get sushi from a truck stop. But you should not get you, you can. sushi from a truck stop. <laughs> it's not a you can, good life. but <laughs> it's not a good life choice. Live food that you either have to ingest live or kill is not something we normally see in Western culture. It's that just doesn't happen. And it immediately made me think of food safety standards. Now we have some FDA food safety guidelines that are on the FDA website. And Nari, uh, since you did have uh, an experience in food service in your youth, can you help help us understand what those requirements are? Yeah, so I don't know, Tom, if you had a similar experience working in food service as a as a young person, but I had to get a, a food handler's card in when I was growing up in Arizona in order to work at Starbucks. Actually, hmm. even though they don't serve you know freshly prepared food, <clears throat> I still had to get the basic license because you know you handle food, um, you have to manage a, a refrigerator and things like that. Um, and like the rules are pretty basic, so some of them include like, and this is FDA standards, but it all sounds you know pretty similar to what I had to memorize, um, you know, washing your hands and cooking tools, very important. Um, and, uh, you know, washing the food, rinsing fruits and vegetables. Um, some of the ones that are a little bit less intuitive, perhaps that, you know, you maybe don't like the things I just mentioned, everyone should be practicing at home. <laughs> the second one that maybe people don't understand is also how you the, how you store different types of food in a refrigerator. If you haven't seen, I think it's Kitchen Nightmares. Um, there's a there's a lot of these in there where you know uh, they go into the fridge and they see the raw meat being stored on the top shelf, right, and then all of the vegetables being stored right underneath it, or even a dessert being stored right underneath it. Like, um, and the point about that is just you know in the event that there are drippings off of the raw meat and they do not get secured by whatever package it's in, mm. you want to make sure it has nowhere to go, right? Because <laughs> um, you might not, uh, you might be serving some of those vegetables raw. You don't want anything prepared that's ready to eat right underneath it either. Because anything that has that touches raw meat either needs to be cleaned thoroughly or cooked thoroughly. <laughs> uh, so that's why you generally store it in the bottom. Mm. Um, other things I had to memorize that are also in the FDA guidelines are the safe 
uh, temperatures at which you can cook meat. Um, I will say, though, that like as a home cook, I generally find those temperatures to be a little bit high for people that don't prefer their meat to be kind of roasted, like <laughs> dry. <laughs> but nonetheless, those are the safe temperatures in the sense that, you know, that's the temperature you get to where the chance of you getting a foodborne illness are basically negligible. Um, most people will accept a small amount of risk in order to, for example, have a rare steak. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that Arizona has some, you know, standards like that. North Carolina, it was like the Wild West. Uh, and not that there weren't rules and whatnot, but I didn't have to get a license when I worked at Buffalo Wild Wings. So... <laughs> You know, you were taking, you were assuming the risk. We'll, we'll use the legal term when you walked into my section uh, there, even though I wasn't cooking the food. But it all goes back to, to sort of a, a liability premise, right? It's one thing if like you, me or Josh are cooking at home and you just ignore rules like that and you get sick, that's your own fault. But when we go out to a restaurant and we're sort of putting our trust into somebody else and we're paying them to pr prepare food, we expect it to be done in a way that's not going to send us like to the toilet all night or to the hospital in, you know, in a worst case scenario. And so it becomes a liability issue for a restaurant to, to meet these standards. Like I, you know, one thing that we did have when I worked at, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings and, and also at Subway um, was random inspections from the state. And so a health inspector would come in and, you know, you always see the, the little grade, uh, from the Department of Health at most restaurants, like an ABCD grade. And those random inspections would set that grade. And they're looking at everything top to bottom. And, you know, it's a set of public health rules that holds those restaurants' feet to the fire to make sure that they're doing those things. And, you know, the, if, if you did a scheduled inspection, if you knew it was coming, everything would be tip top. The idea is you want to catch a restaurant operating like they normally do, not operating on their best behavior. And I don't know that this restaurant or this bar here on Trask has any kind of, I, I, I would be surprised if it was above a C grade in terms of what we saw swimming around in Baby Yoda's food and just the general, I just like the tube that he had to pull mm. down to dispense this chowder from. It just looks really sanitary. So... <laughs> Yeah. I, ironically, I like the ambiance, but then again, I'm kind of nautically inclined. So I look at it, it's like, oh, this is classic New England, you know, tavern for, for sailors and whalers. And it's like, yar, you know, like for me, it's like that. I, I, I would enjoy some time there. Maybe not the menu. I don't like seafood. <laughs> yeah. And not going to attract a lot of tourists, so it'll get your business, but not mine. <laughs> I got the place all to myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, food from a tube. It's like, so you want the chowder, you know, or do you want the beef stroganoff? Does that come from a tube? Like, how how does this work? So there's definitely, uh, again, I like the ambiance. So I, I'll just leave it at that. Now, we, we meet a what can be described as a commercial fisherman. So I don't know if they were watching Deadliest Catch or if they had had Moby Dick recently on. I, I don't know the inspiration. <laughs> <clears throat> but we were on a boat that's supposed to be a couple hour sail to go find other Mandalorians. And just, again, speaking, speaking sailor, 
like all the, the dock lines that they have, the netting, all of that makes sense from a nautical perspective to me. Like it just, it looks familiar that they clearly hung out and were looking at the fishing fleet around Pier 39. Like they, they came down the hill from the Presidio and that's where they hung out and had lunch one day and they, they took really copious notes. Good job, guys. Love what you, love what you're doing. What doesn't make sense is what looks like the giant sail at the bow of the boat. It's like, what's the purpose of that? Because it doesn't, <laughs> is it, what's it do? Because that seems like an obstruction. It would make sense if it's a, a, a mass with lights for say towing, but like that's not as function. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, we do see uh, davits and cranes, all that makes sense. And what would be like the cargo hold, like the fish hold, where they'd be dumping fish and dumping live fish. All, all of that makes sense. And what doesn't make sense is the creature that they have living in there that they're apparently fishing for to feed. Why do that? Is that thing going to get butchered at some point? So this is a weird... Yeah, I... I assume it has to either be a food thing or it's a like exotic creature that sells for a lot, like a sarlacc or something like that. You know, maybe there's a hut somewhere who wants to keep that in his lair. <laughs> yeah, and at the the post credits where they were showing the the art, one of them of the fishing village looks like uh, they're butchering what would have been a whale, you know, or at least conceptually what we would have seen 150 years ago, because. That's, that's what people did when they hunted whales. We don't have anything that big that comes out of the ocean anymore because we don't hunt whales unless you're a Japanese research vessel or, yeah. So anyway, that's that's another topic entirely. But I, I wonder if they, they keep it there, if it reproduces and like the, the offspring or like the young are something that they can then sell. Um, you know, like it's like a chicken that lays eggs. I, and I say that because Sasha Banks character, uh, one of the other Mandalorians Co who's named Casca Reeves in the episode, uh, they're all kind of meeting and talking. You see her kind of slurp in a tentacle of something. And I just thought, you know, maybe that's something that they're doing there. Otherwise, it mm. they're just having a boat with a big carnivorous creature and they spend their days feeding it and then go back and... Who knows how they make money? I think I think that might make a lot of sense because um, like, we do like there's also the tentacled live creature in Baby Yoda's food, right? Where do they get those? Maybe they are hatching out of the mammacore. <laughs> Maybe it's just you look at that and it's like, okay, why? Uh, it's not, I I don't see anyone milking that at least in living because that uh, <laughs> good luck finding the other. Uh, so Dive on in. <laughs> It's like, mm, no, I'm out. So, so anyway, just again, that's just a practical discussion of why, why? Because like, it doesn't make sense. It just exists. It's, it's like the trash compactor monster. It's like, why was that there? How did that happen? But we, uh, we have fishermen and sailors get a really bad name uh, quickly in this. So they go from just being like a gruff fisherman that you kind of expect to attempted murder, that they just wanted to kill the kid and then kill Mando so they could get the best car and sell it. And Nari, could you could you walk us through attempted murder? 
so attempted murder is all the same elements as murder, except, of course, you do not get to completion, which is the person is dead. Um, elements of murder include, number one, you have to have had intent to kill. Um, if we're talking about first-degree murder, it has to be premeditated. This one seems pretty premeditated. <laughs> so I'm going to say check. Um, the second one is you had to have taken some act, some meaningful act in the furtherance of that intent to kill. And in this case, you know, they definitely did. <laughs> um, they got him in the tank, I guess you would call it, the cage with the mamacore. Um, and they were trying to stab him or get him to drown, whatever that was, with the poles or the spears. Uh, I'm going to say that this all, this all fits. <clears throat> and with <laughs> attempted murder, you really need intent. And, and that's there. Like, they, they had intent. I'm sorry, there was no plausible world in which there this was not intentional. Like, are you going to say, oh, we accidentally <clears throat> got Baby Yoda in there and then accidentally tried to hit you with it's our It's a slippery spear. boat deck. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa. <clears throat> whoa. Don't worry that the pram floats. <laughs> yeah, there's a... On, oh, go on, Thomas. No, I, I was just going to say on the premeditation front, I always my typical MO is to watch it the episode a second time through with subtitles on and there's a, a brief bit right in the bar where the the bartender goes over to the quarren to to basically tell him you know hey these are the guys that can take you to the mandalorians and he whispers you it's hard to hear it if you don't have subtitles on but the bartender tells him that yeah he's got beskar on so it's clear that and and they make that clear after they knock him in that, Hey, the best car is ours. That's what they're after. And so I think without a question, you can have premeditation with like one second of planning. It, it doesn't take uh, a long scheme uh, to, to check the intent box off. But I think very clearly they had this worked out from the get go. Why Din didn't figure out that these guys were nefarious. I don't know, but uh, that's another issue. And and I also, th you know, it's interesting because they don't, it, it's not as if somebody pulls a blaster on Din and the child and, you know, the, the traditional way of murder where one person kills another or, or tries to. Here you're using like a creature to do that. And I think it still meets the elements there. If you were to like knock somebody into like you're walking around the zoo, having a nice day and you shove somebody over into the, the tiger enclosure with the intent that the tiger eats them, that's murder. You know, just because you didn't you didn't do the biting or the the eating, it doesn't make a big difference here. So, my husband died of natural causes. You pushed him off a cliff. <laughs> Gravity is natural. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's like the uh, you know the enemies of Putin who die of a bear attack in their apartment. It's the bear was in the apartment. How'd that happen? Like it's that sort of things. Things happen in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pack of wild dogs in his apartment. Oh, what? Yeah. So we're in. We're in there. And now, some of you might be wondering. Well, how often does like situations come up where commercial boaters try murdering people? Well, there's case law, um, and it's apparently more frequent than we want to talk about. But one case had, uh, it started in Colombia with the intent to sneak uh, Cuban nationals into the United States. And what happened to the people who paid money uh, was um, uh, out of the three people, 
Uh, two were murdered, two of them were sexually assaulted, and the third survived. So all bad, all bad. And that really just gives sailors a bad name for something of that magnitude to be happening. Now, uh, we have the issue, uh, I'm not sure who, who put it in, but uh, we have the issue of uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Which, I, know, I put that on, one in. On the entire audience? Is know, that the, the victim of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so tossing, so assuming nothing else had happened, right? Well, actually, you know, you would bring all the charges that you could, I, I think, if you were the prosecutor. And the part where they toss the child into the Mamacore tank, who is then, it appears like that at least his crib is like swallowed by the Mamacore. That is like a pretty classic case of intentional <laughs> infliction of emotional distress. Um, it's a family member, right? So we would definitely consider the Mandalorian and uh, Baby Yoda to have this special relationship, um, which is one of the keys that, one of the elements that you need for IIED. Um, and they do this thing, which is, you know, it either appears to or does in fact inflict grievous bodily harm or death in the presence of, you know, the person who has the special relationship. Um, this would be like, for example, uh, you know, and it's actually a little bit harder to get IIED than I think some people who first hear the term think, but this would be like, you know, you know, a father standing outside his house and somebody comes over and intentionally, right, like, you know, runs a car over his kid. Like, that's IIED. <laughs> um, and this would be exactly, I think, that textbook case. Yes, absolutely. And... Yeah, good way to freak out the audience uh, as well with like you. Yeah, it, go ahead. Sorry. It's like you did what to the kid? Yeah, I, I, I even though you know that they're not going to kill him in the scene, like, you know, that with certainty, I still lean forward and was like biting, you know, down on on something because I was so nervous about what might happen. And honestly, it was like to see him come back out of the water and the the pram be so damaged and basically non-functional have its door ripped off that was that was rough too just as an audience member if mando was going to sue like in civil court for this sort of thing the first question i would ask him is well what if if i'm thinking about representing him is what kind of damages are we talking about because it's not enough to say it's not enough i should say to, to to go through the expense and time of litigation if your damages are just well, that was an upsetting thing to see, and and there are no other, you know, damages that flowed from that. But I think between the damaged pram, which is clearly a valuable asset that's been destroyed because of this act, and if if Mando has trouble like doing things, like for example, uh, you know, your inability to work, so lost wages, is frequently a uh, a key element of damages in a, in a civil case like this. So if man, if Mando found himself uh, just continually troubled by uh, like say the memory of this event and he can't take jobs, he's not able to function. He's got, you know, say diagnosable illnesses like PTSD or something like that, that, that flow and, and he can show there's causation there. Then he's got more of a case. Uh, if he walks into my office and the only thing is, Hey, they destroyed my baby's pram even if it's an expensive one, I'd say, well, that's, you know, that's tough. Maybe if you have a, a case for a small claims court uh, or that's fit for a small claims court, maybe, but it's hard to bring an entire lawsuit over uh, something like that. If you don't have more. Agreed. Agreed. 
Uh, and they, you know, after, again, the rescue, and we'll talk about that next, the other Mandalorians destroy the vessel. So anything that could have been a salvage, great scene, by the way, you know, salvage value. And it's like, so the thing that the, the assets destroyed. So. Like the sail on the front. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I don't either. That's why they blew it up. <coughs> Let's get rid of this pointless ship. <laughs> terrible ship. Goodbye. So it doesn't make sense from a design aspect. And there's this giant <laughs> killing thing in the cargo hold. <laughs> yeah, it has to die. It, we're, we're killing it right now. I, I could see why they would scuttle her. Well, let, let's talk about the scene I did not see coming. So, like, normally I'm pretty good at predicting, but this was a very pleasant surprise with who we saw. And as soon as the uniforms appeared or the armors appeared, it's like, we're going to get to see her. This is cool. And it raises the wonderful issue of defense of others. That happens both on the boat and on the docks. And the analysis is simultaneous. And the defense of others, I'll just run quickly through the elements here and we can then analyze it. But the law for defense of others or defense of oneself requires that someone must actually and reasonably believe in the necessity of defending oneself from imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. And Nari, why don't you take the boat and in that analysis and applying these factors? Sure. <laughs> um, ah, okay, so when it comes to the Mandalorians showing up, um, and uh, do you mean like destroying the boat, or do you mean like killing the sa the the, yeah. the would be murderer sailor? <laughs> yeah, it's <clears throat> saving Mando and child from. Oh, okay, okay. Because I was like, I don't know about destroying the boat. <laughs> I don't know how that fits in here. That was just but, a funny scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's just being punitive. Of we never want anyone to do this again. <laughs> Sending a message. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. So I think that this probably. I mean, so it's not oneself is the thing, but you usually can do. You usually can do defense of others when it comes to self defense, um, and I believe that would definitely qualify here. I mean, you have. You know, even if they didn't see Baby Yoda getting tossed in, they have Mando clinging to the bars and they're trying to stab him or, or push him down into the monster. Um, that's imminent danger of death or great bodily injury. That qualifies. <laughs> uh showing up and then using deadly force also probably qualifies especially um in you know in this instance where it seems like they have a pattern of practice of killing mandalorians yeah he's that armor has to be really heavy you see him uh, i think you're spot on about the 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 threat to him because even though he's got a grip somewhat on the grates that are above him if you look, he's firing his rocket pack oh. just to stay up. So, you you know, it gives you a sense of <clears throat> how much of a struggle it is. And he's not doing that because he's being, you know, stabbed at. It's it's because the armor is literally dragging him down. So I think you're you're exactly right. He was he was going to die if they didn't intervene. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was neat seeing them kick ass. That was just so much fun. You know, what's things that we'd only seen in animation happen on live screen. It's like, nice, nice. We just, that made me day, made my day, made my day. Uh, what I love about it is like Mando 
is good, but he's got his limitations, right? He's not always, you know, he's not like a Jedi where it's just any foe that comes up against him. He's just slicing through like hot butter. But when Bo-Katan and her team arrive, they are like a surgical force. I mean, it's, it's, and if you know Bo-Katan's history, if you've watched the Clone Wars or Rebels, you know how much history, I mean, her entire life has been fighting and combat and whatnot. So you're, you're watching this well-oiled Mandalorian machine in action. That was awesome to see. Exactly. Plus the actress playing her has no uh, shortage of, a, of live action experience playing a fighter. And if you watch uh, Katie Sarkoff's Instagram, it's like there are the workout videos and everything that she does. It's like awesome. Just awesome to see. Which then uh, brings us to the second part of we have the fight on the dock. And uh, Thomas, you know, we, again, similar analysis here. Of we have angry fishermen saying, you killed my brother. And again, Bo-Katan and, and company arrive and eliminate the threat. Th uh, analysis, please. This one has a slight wrinkle to it in that, you know, the, the corn, had they not all been shot dead, <laughs> might argue that, you know, they were somehow, uh, their use of force was somehow connected to or justified because of the Mandalorian's use of force. That, in other words, he started this, he killed my brother, we're, we're doing this. But, you know, there's enough time in between those acts. It's not as if this corn little posse showed up right as uh, the fight was happening on the boat. This is like hours later in a different location. This is a revenge killing, right? Um, they're finishing what the, the other family member started. And so that's not a justification for the Quarren. Good thing for Bo-Katan, she steps in right during the exact same sort of moment that she did on the boat which is this moment where he's about to get shot. It, it's clear that he's facing death or grievous bodily harm. And the whole, you know, the, the thing with self-defense, the question that you have to ask is, if Bo-Katan steps into his shoes, into Mando's shoes, what sort of force would she be able to use? Because that's the central question for self-defense. And in that case, she'd be able to respond to that deadly threat with uh, deadly force. So that's why she and, and her comrades there are able to, to shoot him up there and, um, you know, save Mando once again. If I could just add one thing, I just want to emphasize. So uh, when, when Tom, you were talking about whether or not they're justified based on what happened on the, on the fishing boat or the Mamacore boat, whatever it was, um, you know, there's a big thing. So we're assuming that none of these Quarrens are law enforcement authorities. <laughs> um, so generally, when we're talking about private use of force, we're talking about, you know, preventing grievous bodily harm or death to yourself or someone else. If the person is already dead, right, if someone had been threatening, the, uh, you know, grievous bodily harm, and now that person, the, the victim is already dead, you do not have then the justification uh, that you would have had when that person was being threatened, but still alive. <laughs> Um, so you can't, and that's like the distinction here, right? We don't recognize a private right of force when it comes to revenge. Um, that is what we leave to the authorities. The only thing that you could then maybe insert there is like a citizen's arrest. <laughs> um, but in that case also, you know, you have to have personally witnessed the felony. They are obviously not on the boat. Someone told them 
I guess I saw the boat blow up. It was probably the Mandalorian. <laughs> Um, and, you know, in most jurisdictions, you have to have personally witness the crime and it has to be like immediate. You can't then wait around for him to get back to the dock and be like, yeah, let's let's go arrest him now. Uh, and even then, your use of deadly force is going to be extremely prescribed. So I don't think that there's any legal justification for this brawl. No, it's a revenge killing. They he wanted revenge. And again, rough sailor at the dock. It's. It's a tale as old as time, but uh, but no, 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 no. Now we we there's no Batman defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Well, handy, not legal. Uh, which brings us to again, we're back to the bar. Hopefully, a different bar, because if the if they already tried murdering you once, don't go back. So there's that. And we we have a heist planned to raid Imperials. Thomas, this, I think, is going to really go to your experience with Law of War as a, as a JAG officer. But we we have the, you know, let's get into the legality of Mandalorians raiding an Imperial transport. And in the, these were my thoughts and uh, to help frame the issue. Mandalorians have been butchered by the Empire. We have someone who was the rightful head of state that was either deposed or there's there are facts that we don't know that transpired after rebels however the battle of jakku has taken place the empire has surrendered but there's still an imperial fleet running around under moff gideon how big is it what are their resources how are they able to still afford paying the troops that work for them are they i i would think they're they're operating more than just plundering a planet in order for its resources there has to be a functional society with taxes that go to support the operation. So that way they're actually like self-sustaining as opposed to uh, like former Confederates on the run or the uh, werewolves after uh, the end of World War II in, in Germany. You know, the guys were putting piano wire up between trees to decapitate soldiers. Like this isn't, a hit and run operation. They're trying to have a functional government still. And all of that's bad. Um, so is there a state of war between Mandalore and that Imperial remnant? Or is there some other legal basis that the Mandalorians could actually plan a raid on Imperials? Or is this just pure piracy? And Tom, your thoughts. I'm just gonna like play with my little toy Gozanti cruiser here. Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> now that that's been gloriously on screen again. Uh, yeah, the the question of a state of war is an interesting one. The um, I would Can look the at it as engage in war. Do they have a nation state? Well, I would. That's a great question. That's exactly where I was going. And, and I would ask the same question about the empire. Uh, at this point, they have signed the galactic concordance, which is the, uh, the instrument with the new Republic that required them to surrender. And that the core term of that document was that the empire, you know, as we know it, or as we knew it is gone. There is a, uh, you know, an empire like little E, but they're confined to a really uh, small space uh, within, I think, the, the core sector of the galaxy. Um, 
but they're roped off and any other Imperials that are still operating who don't then surrender are considered war criminals. So those folks might think that they have in, in terms of the Imperials like Gideon and, and the, the captain of this cruiser might think that they have authority uh, and that their you know, nation state still exists uh, the, the same way like the Taliban or ISIS might think that they have a nation state because they say they do and they make a, a flag and, you know, uniforms and stuff like that. But it doesn't actually like saying that and doing those things doesn't actually give you authority. And I think there's a little more complex argument for the Mandalorians because, you know, they at least where we saw them at the end of Rebels, the animated show, they had united that these disparate families and tribes had united under Sabine or excuse me, uh, under Bo-Katan. She had the dark saber, you know, this cultural piece of property that uh, is this great unifier, sort of like Excalibur. And, uh, you know, I think you can infer that, and, and they had gotten out from at least temporarily that the empire's boot heel. And so you could infer that, that, you know, the mantle that Bo-Katan took was the same one, that her sister held the, the rightful ruler of Mandalore and, you know, a, a planet that was a nation state. After that, the great purge happens. She clearly gets run off into exile somehow. And, you know, does the government, does her uh, legitimacy just cease to exist? Um, I tend to think not. And so if she's acting as part statesman, part, you know, commander in chief of what remains of, Mandalore's forces and that sort of thing. I think there is some level of authority there for her to go after uh, remaining Imperial forces. Um, and I think from the, the New Republic standpoint, I don't know if they would condone that sort of thing because they, they want to end war and violence, but I think they wouldn't necessarily expend a lot of effort to stop the Mandalorians because they're, you know, they're, they're, pursuing violence for, you know, the common good, for, for lack of a better term. So I think they would look the other way. Well, so I, have, I don't know. That was a lot of words for... I have one more question sort of building off of that. Um, and this is partly a, a question just stemming from a little bit of my lack of knowledge about Clone Wars and Rebels and things like that. My, my understanding of the state of the universe or the galaxy at the time of this episode is that the Mandalorians do not hold territory. Is that correct? I, so it, it doesn't sound like they hold Mandalore yeah. based on what Bo-Katan said. They were driven from it. And, it, you know, it, it was an interesting dichotomy because Din says, well, that place is cursed. You know, we, anybody who goes there dies. And Bo-Katan doesn't really come out and say all the details, but she's like, eh, don't believe everything you've heard. So it sounds to me like there's some remnant that still exists there that it's, you know. There might be Mandalorians there, but she's rallying forces to try to take it back. Um, just because, like, uh, and you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but one of my understandings about sovereignty and whether or not you're a nation state is that, and this might be a little counterintuitive, or at least not intuitive <laughs> for some listeners, is that generally speaking, in order to be considered a sovereign nation, you have to have territory. <laughs> um, and this would be why, like you were just saying, you know, if, if ISIS holds no territory, we don't recognize them as a nation state. Um, it's also slightly less darkly, maybe actually differently darkly. It's one of the reasons why there are Pacific Island nation states that are actually in danger of no longer becoming 
nation states as a result of uh, rising uh, ocean levels because of climate change. Um, mm -hmm. And there was an interesting, you know, little legalistic discussion about whether or not you could relocate um, some of those nation states to places that were offering land like Australia or New Zealand, but whether they would actually still exist as a nation state if you know they if those countries that were offering to host them didn't literally cede the territory right because then you have a culture that's living within another nation state but they don't technically hold territory <laughs> um so it's just kind of an interesting thing and I, I think in order to be in a state of war as opposed to just being a non-state actor like a terrorist group uh engaging in hostilities you would have to have some kind of sovereign nation state with territory <laughs> i i would almost those are really really good points and i the thought that popped into my head as you were talking would be some of the European nations that were overrun by the Blitzkrieg in World War II. So the Nazis sweep in and say like a, a country like Poland, um, you know, the Nazis control the territory. I, I think there are some differences here because there still was, you know, some form of government. It, I don't think the Nazis just replaced everybody with German folks, uh, you know, running the government, but, those countries didn't cease to exist, you know, afterward. And certainly there was a resistance movement movement within a lot of those nations. Uh, and, and when all was said and done and the, the Nazis were beaten back, you know, those, those nations didn't uh, cease to exist. And if I'm Bo-Katan, I would say, look, the only reason that we don't control territory here is because you guys uh, carried out a genocide against our people. Well, you didn't do a good enough job and we're still here. So we're going to fight back and take our planet back. Oh, yeah. And um, I don't mean to, but yeah. when, with that discussion, I don't mean to say that I don't fully support. Oh, no. Empire. Um, you know, even if you don't have a nation state at the moment, it's just, you know, in discussing law of war and, for example, you know, would they be entitled to combatants privilege and stuff like that? You know, the, from yeah. the empire's perspective, they might not be because their nation may be surrendered or doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and so, like, again, I don't mean to say that I think they're the bad guys. The resistance in France and everything are definitely the good guys. <laughs> it's just this kind of, you know, highly formalistic law of war that invokes certain privileges that even you know, countries or nations or empires that we consider to be morally bad, uh, generally observed um, as neutral principles of of war. But anyway. Yeah. No, it's I, and it's fascinating because it, it seems like this very Star Wars thing that's happened to the Mandalorians. But it's happened. I mean, it's it's just a callback to repeated events in history. Yeah, unfortunately, so. You're on mute, Josh. Oh. And Josh, I see that you added something <laughs> to our notes about this. Would you like to talk about that for a second? <laughs> yeah, I will. So with um, the idea of like part of Australia getting ceded to a Pacific Island nation that that's losing its islands. Uh, I learned back way back in law school doing doing a research product project that uh, Native Americans are, are their their nations are viewed as dependent sovereign nations to the United States, which seems like a massive contradiction in terms to have a dependent sovereign nation within another country, but maybe something like that could, could be the solution that would be, uh, you know, to help those that are literally losing the land that they live on. Now, looking, thinking back to... Oh, I just wanted to say, like, that's definitely a good point. Um, and I think, though, it's it's interesting also, though, to illustrate that while, you know, those kinds of 
different autonomous areas or, or sovereign, different forms of sovereignty can be meaningful and have significance for all kinds of other reasons. One thing that, you know, I, being from Arizona, there's like a number of large uh, Native American reservations in Arizona, including Navajo and Apache. Um, they get to do a lot of their own thing. They have their own court system, all of this stuff. One thing they can't do is declare war. Yeah. <laughs> Because that could get awkward fast. The um, <laughs> very fast, but they're also U.S. citizens. So again, that they they yeah. can, so again, there's a reason why Arizona went blue. Um, so let's let's get into. Uh, I, I think part of this issue is um, thinking back to rebels. Mandalore Prime wasn't the only territory that Mandalore held. There were other planets and moons where we had Mandalorians living, other clans, other families. So that doesn't mean that those were all wiped out. So they, you know, uh, like let's just say that the lower 48 take a massive hit of some kind. The United States still doesn't mean that like we don't exist because you know we still have Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, uh, you know, the Virgin Islands. Like we there, there's still parts of us left. And so again, it's, it's a very interesting thing to, to consider. I'll, I'll toss out that um, just finally with piracy, because the Imperials referred to uh, the Mandalorians as pirates and the legal definition of piracy from the convention on the high seas is piracy is any illegal acts of violence, detention or act of deprivation committed uh, for private ends by the crew or the passengers of a private ship or private aircraft and directed. Well, I don't know if they fully meet the definition because the point is for Bo-Katan to build up her forces to retake Mandalore. So it's, it's not necessarily a private end of what they're trying to pull off. Uh, well, she does want to be the Mandalore. That could be yeah. a private end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense that they would they would tag them with that status, though, because traditionally and historically, um, you know, the, the protections that you have to give to somebody that you're fighting that's a pirate and, and your ability to use force against a pirate is very, very different than, say, another, uh, you know, if they were recognizing them as as Mandalorians, like in, in other words, like representatives of Mandalore, you know, a, a sovereign nation. Um, so th that's very convenient for the empire to declare them that because it sort of allows them to go gloves off and not have to play by too many rules. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's a very interesting legal conundrum because it's not straight analysis because of the status of the participants in the fight. It's like, because those Imperials are still acting like there's an empire. It's very weird. They're, they're, not a, they're not acting like a defeated nation that surrendered. So now we do have a wonderful uh, partial com, uh, call back to um, uh, the Empire Strikes Back. And, and that's the glory of... Uh, of uh, I'm altering, have... yeah, I'm altering the deal. Pray that I do not alter it further. <laughs> yeah. 
Can I just say that Din needs to invest some of his credits in like a general counsel? Yeah. Because <laughs> again and again, you think Lando had it bad on Cloud City, but again and again, he finds himself having struck deals, negotiated at arm's length with the other party, and then the rug just gets pulled out from under him. And, you know, he's just having to, to bite down. He needs a good attorney on his side to be able to, to clean this stuff up fire some angry letters off and, and well and then he would also need a court and a judge and then they would also need to have a bailiff and a marshal you know there's a lot of work to be done here <laughs> details 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 <laughs> um but yeah this is definitely another really fun example of how not to do contract modification oh god yes um, and I think we discussed contract modification in an earlier episode. I, I think it was the one before, right? With with Fish Lady. <laughs> um, yeah. In a way that was good in the sense that the best way and the most sure way to have a validly modified contract is for both parties to consent, right? Uh -huh. um, in this case, you know, technically you could argue that he, that, that you know, Mando agreed to it. There's a problem here, though, which is that you can't modify a contract under duress. Um, mm. I think most people think of that as the classic example with Vader, right? Like yeah. duress meaning like threat of bodily harm or death. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. The like, you know, the classic case involving this is actually appropriately another fisherman's case. It's uh, Alaska <laughs> Packers Association versus Domenico. Yeah, in which there were a group of Alaskan fishermen um, that decided to, you know, in the middle of a hall basically say that you need to raise uh, what you're paying us. So we're not going to bring this in. Um, the person who owned the fishing trawler and had hired them, of course, is now left in a lurch. It's not, he's not in any physical threat of danger or violence, but he had invested quite a bit in this boat and taking this out. And this is like a once in a year season, right? Where you take this haul. If he doesn't get these fish back or these crabs, whatever it was, sorry, I forget the details, but the haul back, he's going under, right? So this is a, this, and that was a situation of, duress even though it was economic and so when they get you know he agrees to it because he has to they need he needs them to finish the season and bring in the haul but when they get back and are like okay so give us our increased wages he says hell because no. <laughs> they're not going to be able to enforce that modification in court and in fact they could not yeah rightly so because it's a jerk move to try to do that in the middle of performance well we yes. have Bo-Katan does, does this with, we're going to go from just taking the weapons to we're taking the ship. And then I don't know how much of that was a command decision just at that moment with like, hey, we need to go for the, for the entire ship. Or if she had that plan from the get-go and didn't disclose. pretty premeditated to me. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't I, think I she disclosed that term intentionally. Yeah, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt, but maybe I just have a soft spot for redheads. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I want to believe it was like, ah, I just changed my mind because I'm used to being in charge. Like, I get that. But Mando, Mando going like, whoa, time out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm done. I did my part. Uh, yeah, it's... Info now, please. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's highly problematic just from like, I didn't sign on to capture the ship, even though they they did it pretty effectively in cutting through the Imperials. So with just oh, that was a that was close pulling that pulling that ship up. That that was not yeah. a foregone conclusion. <laughs> no, but they, they did cut through the Imperials pretty quickly, and 
uh, we do learn that uh, Moff Gideon's pretty cold and calculated. Um, on one level, you got to appreciate the professionalism of the uh, Imperial captain calling in and saying, okay, we need reinforcements. And Gideon asking for specific details, saying, that's eh, too late. Sorry, maybe if you called like 10 minutes ago, we could have done something, but not now. It's, you lost. And he then shoots his pilots and uh, can do a suicide maneuver. That's, um, that's commitment to long live the empire. Uh, but it's not- They must have good pensions. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> the, the fact that it was so cold, it wasn't like fanatical type behavior. Like, you know, there was no yelling or anything like that. Um, it's actually fairly terrifying because it's cold, cold, calculated, and he had no problem doing it. Moreover, there was a fear of death from Gideon if he had survived. So he, he that's, it, it highlights the Imperial handbook of we just kill people left and right in order to determine loyalty. It reminded me of Hydra out of the MCU, just the, the way in which they operate. But it's fascinating to see the the Empire turn into or or turn to the the Rebel Alliance's original way of operating. Which, well, I'm not saying that they would ever like crash a ship to prevent any you know any leaks. But the idea here is there is no giant Imperial Navy anymore. Um, information is valuable. And their network is valuable. So the moment that the network is threatened, you've got to cut off a cell. And that's exactly what was happening here. Um, with and spectacular I have a question form. for you, Tom. Uh, is there anything in the law of war or the uniform code of justice that would allow you to kill your pilots? Uh, that's not really a gray area. I would say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought, I thought so. <laughs> Yeah. I can't think of anything He's, in the uniform code either. <laughs> I did the the seeing and I think this is the first time we've definitely the first time we've seen it on screen, but like the Star Wars equivalent of a cyanide cap tooth or a cyanide pill that you carry. Although the yeah. the electrocution seemed a little rougher than just being poisoned, but yeah, yeah, it's a hard way to go out. I don't think he cared about whatever potential charges we're gonna follow. No, it's yeah, I, I believe from prior discussions, didn't you say that like a quarter of the Imperial fleet had been not accounted for after Jakku? Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah, that's still huge. That's a huge number. So again, what does Gideon control? Are we talking like a couple star destroyers? Or are we talking what looks like the seventh fleet? Like, what are we dealing with here? Like how armed are they? What resources do they have? And how are they self-sustaining? Because you just... Starforge is my guess. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be able to feed people. You got to be able to pay people. Because if you don't do that, you know, just hoping that the uh, soldiers stay around out of loyalty isn't going to fly because they're going to get hungry and leave. And it was the same issue that we had uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, the fear of some guy sitting in a missile silo selling the nuclear weapon for a ton of money because he's not getting paid. This doesn't seem to be a problem with the Imperials because they have to be stable, which means their paychecks and food and that they're living comfortably. 
so again, maybe they'll explore that more. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'll throw out quickly again, being nautical. There is something known as wake damage. As a boat moves through the water, it creates wake, it's displacement. And, you know, it's why you've seen with um, the, like the littoral ships that are, you know, like on like their trimarans, um, that that's supposed to help minimize the wake. Or like if it's on a hydrofoil, it's like it's supposed to minimize the wake because there's less of it going through the water. Because, you know, that's the problem with a stealth ship. If you can see the rooster tail, it's not stealth. So again, it might not be coming up on radar, but you can see it visually with satellites or aircraft and all that good stuff. Uh, well, you're responsible for your wake. And if you've ever gone boating in the California Delta, there are all these no wake zones because if you go through there casting a wake and you damage docks, you're responsible for it. And so this comes from this, this provision in Admiralty law that it is well established uh, that if the wake generated by a passing ship damages a dock vessel, the moving vessel is presumed to be at fault. Well, we have a lot of low flying over water throwing out a hell of a lot of wake that has to do damage because there, there, there had to be a reason for them to have that uh, low speed ascent so they were not causing wake damage. And I just find that fascinating. They actually thought about it. They might not have fully understood why, but they, they did hit on a legal doctrine even if they didn't understand it. And, I and what was especially interesting, because that, that's fascinating. I, I learned something in this podcast. Um, but they were adhering to the rules. This wasn't like your classic Imperials, like we do what we want, we'll smash and grab. And they only violated the rules when it became clear that they needed to get out of there and try to turn the tables on the Mandalorians. And so it almost, like canonically, I thought about it. And, you know, this is a, a black market port and a black market planet there are probably few places that the surviving Imperials can go and get the things that they need to get. So it behooves them to, to not just not destroy the place that they need to rely on, but they want to be welcomed back. And the, the quickest way to be banished from, you know, the, the black market port that you need is to destroy everything with your cruiser's wake. Yeah. Cause it's, there's no repeat business. And it also still highlights the black market port still had rules based yeah. on common sense. <laughs> it's like, we like living here too, guys. So we want... Well, it's like the mob has bookkeepers. <laughs> like, it turns out that to... to it turns out that to get large groups of people to operate and do anything, <laughs> you need organization, you need rules, and you need books. <laughs> Look, you can contract for murder and trade in illegal weapons all you want, but do not accelerate in the no wake zone. <laughs> <laughs> you will be banished. It's like the weird libertarian society. It's like you can do X, Y, and Z, but you will not mess up the roads. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I just, that was just wonderful to see. And I don't know if the writers actually realized what they were doing when they put that in, but it's glorious. Now let's, let's get to a meat and potato issue and it's it's full nerd love and Thomas you might want to take the laboring or with some of the facts with this 
but we who owns the dark saber so it's in the possession of moff gideon we last saw it we first see it in clone wars we then see maul uh defeat was it um was it gar saxon am i remembering that yes okay yep um I, I can play trivia too. Impressive. And, and uh, we have Sabine Wren who recovers it in Rebels when they're on um, uh, Maul's homeworld. And she eventually gives it to Bo Katan for Bo Katan to try to unite all the houses of Mandalore. We don't know what, and that's during the Galactic Civil War. We don't know what happens afterwards. So we don't know what happened during the Night of a Thousand Tears. We don't know how Bo-Katan loses it and how Moff Gideon gains it. But what are your, you know, let's get into the thoughts of who's technically the legal owner of it. And Tom, did I, I miss, it, the, miss any facts? No, you, that was a great uh, I, I don't want to face off against you in dark saber trivia now. <laughs> uh, the the original the the origin of this weapon is it's a a lightsaber that's crafted or a pseudo lightsaber that's crafted by the first Mandalorian Jedi. Uh, he then passes away. This Tar Vizsla and the Jedi keep the the weapon. Uh, at the temple, uh, much to the consternation of the Mandalorians, because this is an important artifact. At some point, uh, I think Death Watch or you know, their that larger collective takes it, and then it, it uh, sort of stays in Mandalorian hands until uh, Moff Gideon. Get, well, Darth Maul briefly has it, as you mentioned. Um, so I, I look at it as like a, an important piece of cultural property, and I think we talked about this an episode or two ago. And it sounds like Moff Gideon got his hands on it during the great purge or the night of a thousand tears, which we don't know what happened, but I'm guessing at least 1000 tears, if not more were shed <laughs> during that, whatever happened there. So it's like, I look at it as he's a soldier. This was a, a military operation and he took a piece of cultural property off the battlefield that did not belong to him. And, and so I see it in the same vein as if, you know, an allied soldier went into one of, you know, Saddam's palaces or, you know, go back to world war two and uh, went into, to, you know, one of Hitler's, uh, you know, houses or something like that and took something that didn't belong to them. You know, the, the question of original ownership is almost like secondary just because it was stolen and you happen to also steal, it doesn't negate liability for you. But the general rule of thumb is you can't steal stuff off the battlefield. There's no uh, spoils of war is not a, a legal defense. And so I, that's exactly what I think Moff Gideon sees this thing as. And uh, I don't think he has any rightful claim to it. So I just want to add, I totally agree with that from the perspective of the cultural artifact um, and law, you know, international law and uh, war crime law governing that. Um, I think, though, we, when, you know, back when we were talking about this, we were talking about it in reference to the marshal um, holding the Mandalorian right. armor and whether or not Mando had a legitimate claim to it. Um, there's at least a much more colorable argument, I think, for the private 
right of ownership, right? That was, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the case, um, Altman versus the Republic of Austria, <laughs> um, right. in which, you know, it's a person, you know, someone who had originally possessed it or a descendant of that person who should have it by right of inheritance, right? Things like that. Um, actually trying to re uh, reclaim, uh, lay claim to a piece of property that was stolen um, during a war. Um, in that case, for the if anyone didn't listen to that episode, involved a uh, descendant of a Jewish person who had been uh, killed during the Holocaust and had an art collection. And this painting by Klimt was stolen by the Nazis. It was on display in a museum in Austria. And the descendant of that person who originally owned the art wanted it back. Um, and they eventually won. Uh, and so in, you know, when it came to the Marshall episode, it was, you know, not really, Mando did not really have a colorful argument for that. His, his society, his culture had, um, you know, some kind of possessive right that we recognize international law over those kinds of artifacts, perhaps. But he did not personally <laughs> have that right that he would be able to uh, reclaim it himself um, in sort of a private action. Um, in this case, you know, it's... We'd have to kind of go back through the line of possession from the Mandalorian's perspective. It's possible that their laws of inheriting property involve, you know, taking it by force. I don't know, things like that. Little. Assuming that there's a legitimate line of possession uh, and title, right, going to the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. I think she has both the way as perhaps the representative of whatever sovereign nation there is of Mandalore now, and personally, having been the last Mandalorian in possession of the Darksaber, I think she would be able to bring both this sort of public right of action where you'd maybe try to bring it before an international law tribunal of some kind and the private right of action uh that this once belonged to her was taken during uh, a battle and she wants it yeah, back. I, so there there is this tradition with the mandalorians that we see in the clone wars of you know saxon verse darth maul and uh maul kills saxon you know beheads him and and that's how um, uh, Maul took uh, over as the leader and also took possession of the Darksaber. I, I don't know if there was a duel between Gideon and Bo-Katan, which, again, that could actually be cool to see a lightsaber fight with uh, uh, if, if Gideon was using another lightsaber, perhaps a Jedi one or a Sith one. And just wielding that and and going to town, or if this was more like just off the battlefield after, say, a massive airstrike, and he then went in and picked up the pieces that he wanted. So we we don't know. There's not enough facts there to to know if it would fall under uh, the traditions of Mandalorian. I'm now in charge, or if it's you know the the battlefield situation. I'm thinking it's battlefield because I don't think Gideon would get his hands dirty uh, in a fisticuffs directly with Bo-Katan. Yeah, and I'm I I, I can't I can't see him no, yeah. <laughs> if he if she was holding a dark saber and he was not yeah. <laughs> <Anyway>. accurate. <laughs> Had to be like overwhelming force, you know. Again, if she was in bed, like <laughs> like that. <laughs> I doubt she was sleeping in a bunker. It had to be, you know, a surprise attack then. Um, again, that, that's just fanboy speculation, but she seems far too competent to just lose it without taking some massive hit in the process, and that's how it was lost. If, 
if I could add one comment as we start to, I, I assume, wrap this up. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I would like you guys to add a little perspective for me since I haven't seen Clone Wars or Rebels. Um, but, you know, I do, I do... I do know, understand enough of the lore to understand the significance of, you know, Bo pointing out to Mando that, oh, you're one of those, you're one of the Watch, like meaning the oh, Death Watch. That cult. Um, and it does kind of, you know, make a little sense given what we've seen of his original tribe, which is that they, they are very committed to sort of these very traditional Mandalorian principles. Um, but what I found very interesting also was that it wasn't clear to me that, you know, Bo-Katan was being presented in a particularly great light as the person seeking to be the next Mandalore in the sense that, for example, you know, trying to change the deal on him in the middle of this thing under under great duress um, was not particularly honorable. And I understand, like, my basic understanding of the schism between the Death Watch and the other houses is that the Death Watch is not only more traditional, but more traditional in the sense that it's more martial. It seeks to do war. Um, I imagine kind of Klingon-esque. <laughs> um, that's the only way you can gain honor and go to heaven. <laughs> um, as opposed to, right, like, you know, you could still have these traditions of honor, but not necessarily think that the only way to gain honor is by killing enemies in battle. Um, but Bo-Katan, by doing these other things, suggests in this ep episode to me that there are actually also problems with perhaps getting too far away from those some of those traditions of honor. Um, and I do find it interesting that in, you know, more martial societies uh, like Klingons, like uh, Mandalorians, and in more real world scenarios, you know, like samurai and things like that, um, the, the honor part of this and the very formal legalistic kind of culture that is involved there um, kind of go hand in hand. And it seemed to me like Bo doing this less legalistic, you know, oh, well, you know, now we're going to take the ship and that's just how it goes, <laughs> um, was kind of emblematic of that that you know kind of schism and i just wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts like are we supposed to be a little troubled by her lack of honor there is that consistent with what you know she was portrayed as earlier in earlier uh, media she was always uh, really pragmatic i mean it, it was she a she was in league with the death watch before she finally broke with them when maul took over uh but she was always after the fact you know, whatever she needed to do to accomplish an objective, it was almost as if this is what needs to be done. Uh, you know, we need to do this for Mandalore and everything else really just doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, it's a means to an end. And there's a great moment in the this last season of the Clone Wars where they brought it back. And it's an arc involving the Siege of Mandalore where the Republic is helping, uh, you know, break control there. And the Republic had traditionally stayed out of Mandalorian affairs. It, there's like a hundred year old treaty or something that they reference. And the prospect of the Republic getting involved in committing troops to this was like a big deal. And Obi-Wan is like very hesitant to do this sort of thing. And Bogotan's reaction is just like, you know, you, you, we need your help. The, end of story. Like, I really don't care what we're doing here, you know, in terms of it, so long as it achieves our objective. And I think she is portrayed consistently here and she may not care. I mean, you know, to, to her, she had this sort of like, like a hilarious reaction to realizing, you know, wh who he is as a children of the watch, like, Oh boy, like you're one of those guys. Um, so I don't know if she doesn't know him and maybe doesn't have a whole lot of respect for him. <laughs> at this point and 
quite frankly, she needs him for a bigger play. I think she's consistent. And uh, this is someone who lived through uh, two wars. So she went through the Clone Wars and all that transpired with that. And then the Galactic Civil War. So this is someone who's uh, went from being probably late teens, early 20s as, you know, during the Clone Wars to now late 40s, maybe 50 uh, by, by this point in time in, in history. So she's seen a lot. She's gone through a lot. And, you know, would have been like somebody who fought in both World War One and World War Two, and like is now entering like the, the Korean conflict. So, you know, somebody clearly with a lot of she, she, yeah. She's aged well. Um, Give me whatever she's taking. Yeah, well, when you think of like, uh, <laughs> she was probably what, 10 years younger than Kenobi. And so she's definitely, uh, you know, not having the twin sons of Tatooine to prematurely age her. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, doing well. Um, I think I agree with everything that Tom said. I don't see like an honor problem out of the gate. Um, I do see like a wonderful comparison to say like the Protestant Reformation. So like if um, if if uh, uh, Din is following more the more conservative version of this is the way, and that could be like more like Catholic, and uh, Bo-Katan is more like Lutheran or Episcopalian of going like, yeah, we, you don't, you just have to believe in God. You, you don't have to pay your way into heaven. Like that's not how this works. She's full on 95 thesis uh, of, of Martin Luther uh, compared to uh, Din who didn't know that happened. So like this, this goes to the big issue of like communication and education because that's culture shock for him to go like, wait, we all don't do this. It's Tom and I were exchanging text messages, but you know, it's like you find out like the thing that you based your entire life around, there's another interpretation. And that's, that's a dangerous part of faith when you find out that there are people who have uh, different beliefs based upon the same thing. And I don't know if that's going to cause friction later or if they'll find a way to normalize it um, or if he'll learn that it's okay if I take off my helmet. It's okay if I get a haircut. I don't have to do this to myself. Uh, like it's not the end of honor. So, uh, but again, it just highlights when you live in very different places and you don't have a communication system that, that unifies everyone. Uh, people can develop their own offshoots of what the message is. Although if I could just add one more thing, I think it can't be accidental that this happened, this episode in which Bo-Katan, you know, changes the terms of an agreement um, in the middle of performance um, happened right after the episode before in which Frog Lady reminds Mando, you know, you made this agreement, um, you know, Mandalorians are supposed to be honor bound unless these were all children's stories and none of it was true. And he, you know, rallies himself and is, yes, I have to do this. I don't care if it kills me. <laughs> Um, and I, I can't imagine that that's accidental. Um, and I don't mean to suggest that Bo is necessarily a bad character, but just that, you know, this kind of harkens back to, I think, you know, some episodes of Discovery or Picard 
where, you know, there are certain things that are not your core principles that you can compromise on or adjust around, including the prime directive. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, you have to stick by them. And if you don't stick by them when it's difficult, when it's costly and when it's extremely risky, then they're not really your core principles. And so um, in this case, you know, Bo sacrificing what seems to be a pretty core principle of Mandalorian culture, which is just the honor bound. If you give your word, that's it. <laughs> Um, you know, in the say, for the sake of pragmatism, even in a very important goal, which is to retake Mandalore, at least I was personally still quite troubled by that. And I think, you know, just the, com the contrast with the episode before, you know, I'm not saying that Jin has everything right. Uh, and you definitely shouldn't take off your helmet. You're not a true Mandalorian, but there are parts of it that have to be core principles. Yeah, I, one of them is keeping your word. I see where you're coming from. And I, There, she might be rationalizing it that she is like that, that like, okay, we now, which again, if it, this was just mission creep, I don't see it as her breaking her word uh, that she, re, if she realized in the middle of the mission, we're going to need to take the entire ship. I don't have a problem with that. If it was premeditated that I'm, you know, lying in order to get his cooperation, that is problematic. Uh, Tom, do you have a thought on that? I mean, I, I think it, it. I think it was premeditated. She knew that that senior ranking officer would have information on where the dark saber was, and so I go back to, and this kind of seg, you know dovetails with Nari's comment that from Bo-Katan's perspective, she's not sacrificing a core ideal she's you know th the important thing is that they retake mandalore because without it they are adrift as a society adrift as a culture adrift as a religion for you know lack of a better term there and you know the planet is a core part of their identity that that sovereign territory and it always has been um and so from that standpoint i think she looks at this situation just says, you know, call it what you will here. You know, he could be upset at me and, and, you know, other Mandalorians might take issue with how I did this, but there's a larger goal at play. And so I think she's rank ordering things in a way that makes sense to her. I also think she, she, to some extent has the experience to know, you know, the problems that sticking to certain ideals bring when you you lose all reason to it so that the mandalorians that stuck beside maul and fought to, with him to the bitter end uh you know because of their own interpretation of mandalorian society and and uh you know their viewpoints she saw cause great destruction it, it like you know put their society under the boot heel or under a very different boot heel for a while just like the mandalorians that aligned with the empire did and, uh, you know, I think at this point, she's just done. She's, you know, she's, you know, 40, 50, she's seen two conflicts and her planet not have any peace whatsoever for decades. She's ready to put an end to it. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with her willingness to keep the end goal in mind because, you know, she does state that we're stronger together or something along those lines. She wants to end Mandalorians just doing their own thing and like, we'll just be legends. It's like, okay, that's not a society. Like, you know, like we're now just a legend. 
and we want to be alive. And so like there's, there's, I, I get that from a practical aspect. Now there's, there's one thing to betray values. And I don't think she betrayed values because I think she's keeping the, the ultimate goal of we needed these weapons in order to retake the planet. Like we will retake our home. Like that makes sense. You know, it, it's, it'd be like, uh, you know, like we're, we're pretty big on, you know, all men are created equal. Like when in the course of human events, like there, there's certain things that rally Americans that go to who we are. Like we're, we're used to being the heroes that fight bad guys. That sort of identity uh, is not being val valid, um, violated, at least not yet. So I, I think she has the big goal of, bring everyone together, retake the planet, right wrongs. Um, you know, and if that ends with Gideon's head on a pike, I don't think she's going to feel bad about that. Um, I'm, I'm just going to posit my slight disagreement here, which is if the value then is Mandalorian nationalism, she's being very uh, consistent. If the value is Mandalorian tradition or culture, which includes, I think, it has to include the honor element. Um, I, th I don't think that's consistent. Like the, the, those, those two are separate things. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, you might end up winning the war, but if you end up winning the war by adopting the values of your enemy, um, you know, did you, did you really restore your, nation? I don't, well, again, it's, it's early, but I don't see the path that she's on as violating their core values because Sure, and this was relatively small transgression with one person. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, <laughs> but just you know, we'll see where this goes. Maybe, maybe my disturbance in the force here will. It's it, when maybe thinking it to the Mandalorian-themed episodes in Rebels and Clone Wars. I mean, it it seems consistent. You know, like she's not. Well, again, there's a high body count. All the Imperials are dead by, by the end of the episode. Um, yeah, I don't... Sorry, I don't mean to also, like, I, I understand you guys have seen all these other media and I have not gotten to know and love Bo-Katan like you have. So um, I will I will also try to catch myself. No, it's, I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair criticism. You like, you know, if can you be on the run so long that you start betraying their values? or you forget who you are. Uh, and like, you know, those are, those are big weighty issues. Um, there's also the fact that like, I might be tired of getting screwed by these guys. So like this, we're going to get our hands dirty in order to then be able to wash them off later. Like there's, uh, again, we'll, we'll see where she's going. So. Yeah. I, the, the, I think Nara, you make a really good point because at some point, she could turn into like a Saul Guerrero type character. Maybe that's how she's been operating, right? Where you are so committed to an end state or a goal that you, you start to lose everything else. And you don't even realize that. You don't have the perspective to, and it's a destructive path. So I'll be very interested. I think Filoni's episode is number five. So we're still two out from that. I, I think we'll at least see a peak of Ahsoka next episode, but I don't think the meat of her is going to come until Filoni's episode. Tom, I agree with your prediction because they have to give Filoni the, the honor of putting Ahsoka on screen. Like it would, that would just be weird not to. Um, 
he might have had that pre-written into his contract before they ever discussed story terms. Like if any of the <laughs> following characters, uh, you know, including but not limited to, and then Ahsoka's number one are included, I will direct the episode. And, and it, it made sense that Favreau wrote and direct this this one since he, or not direct, but wrote this one because of his connection to the Mandalorians and having voiced one of them. And yeah, like that totally makes sense uh, story-wise. And I mean, I, I appreciate the fact they keep the directors silent. Like, you know, like I didn't know Howard directed this one and, until the end. And I was very pleasantly surprised with, okay, she's good for her. Uh, let's see who gets the next one and and go from there so yeah it's there are all there are many ways that they can go with this you know if there's an imperial fleet still floating around that's a problem and the beat up razor crest is not going to take that out by itself and so i don't know how they're going to end this where they're going to go with it um and is this teasing anything else that we might see? So uh, that said, again, I watch it at five o'clock in the morning. So it's uh, no other show have I done that for since early childhood. So uh, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, it's- I know. Can't wait till the next one. Lamenting that it's a full week until it happens. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Carbon freeze myself <laughs> until Friday. <laughs> there, there, there's enough to do um, enough to do between now and then work wise and I'm in the middle of moving so I, I, yeah. I have plenty to keep me busy so actually carbon freezing is a terrible idea to pass time because I would want to be well, you would have to be woken up with enough time to get over your carbon sickness because otherwise you'd be blind you couldn't see the episode it'd be horrendous the whole plan would go well, sideways not everyone, again as we saw with uh, Clone Wars not everyone came out of it blind so that's true it's, it's, with my luck i would I i'd be i don't know if i'd roll the dice on not i'd be han solo I'm like just yeah. <laughs> point me in the direction of the tv and describe what what's happening yeah, he, he, he must have been there for a couple years as opposed to like a couple <laughs> days so again things to talk about well that everyone uh thank you for tuning in and you know if you listen to us on itunes stitcher uh there's a, <laughs> and um, nice. uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, please leave a review. And everyone, this is the way. <laughs>